It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton about Ed Balls and the Economy, Raphael Baer will be interviewing Ryan Shorthouse of Bright Blue about Tory modernisation, and I talked to Laurie Penny and Ian Steadman about online abuse. by George Eaton, the editor of The Staggers, to talk about, well, well, let's first of all, let's talk about Ed Balls. You interviewed the Shadow Chancellor this week. He offered you a mince pie. He seemed in good spirits. Uh, What else did you find when you talked to him? Yes, as you say, he was in good spirits, and I thought I might find a rather tetchy figure. I mean, Balls had quite a difficult... End uh, to end to his year with a we lot of a criticism. Terrible around response the, to the autumn session yeah. was universally panned. I think, as movie critics put it. Yes, and that started off a new wave of speculation over his position. Um, but he seems you know, genuinely relaxed, and I think fairly confident that his 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 reputation can recover from from the battering it's had recently. And George Osborne made a big play on Monday about austerity, about looking beyond the next election, about more cuts, essentially, particularly we've been talking all week about the problem of the fact that the welfare bill is half pensions and there's not a lot of you know excess fat, if there ever was, left in it. Where are Labour on those kind of issues? So Ed Balls has said that he'd take the winter fuel payments from the wealthiest uh, 5% of pensioners. That's really a symbolic move. It saves 100 million, which isn't nothing, and actually... Um, you know, I think a point worth noting this week is that when the Conservatives dismiss means-testing pensioner benefits on the grounds they don't raise much money, you know, that doesn't take account of the fact that things like the benefit cap and the bedroom tax also don't raise much money. They are so really the for... bedroom tax was about was only a couple of hundred million, wasn't yes. it? Yes. So, yeah, so, yeah, it's about what messages you want to send out. So where are Labour on this? I mean, on cuts, I, I sort of tried to pin balls down several times. His view seems to be that... A Labour government could do more to improve the underlying growth of the in the economy and its um, and, and levels of productivity, and actually lessen the need for cuts, um, which some economists would agree with. Uh, politically, it it is difficult for them because Osborne has managed to frame this debate so successfully. But I think Miliband is confident that 2015 really will be the living standards election. And one of the interesting things that came out from the recent Ashcroft poll on Tory leaning registers is that very few of them are actually interested in the deficit now. He said that they saw the economy solely through the prism, or largely through the prism of cost of living. So, I mean, obviously the Conservatives have tried to get there with things like the freeze and fuel duty. They've also laid a trap, haven't they, with the, the capping um, bills yeah. that are coming through in the summer. Could you 
explain to me again what those are? My brain so Osborne has said he's going to cap total welfare spending um, for the first time. So he's already introduced a cap on uh, household benefits. This will be on the total welfare budget. And he's also said he's going to introduce a charter for budget responsibility, which commits the next government to running a surplus at some time in the uh, in the next parliament and using any m- spare money to pay down debt rather than uh, spending more on public services. My that's My... a classic Osborne trap in the sense, isn't yeah. it? Because even if the Conservatives were elected with a in a coalition or majority, they could probably find some way of weaseling it out in the same way that a lot of the discussions about the EU referendum have been about setting a, a trap for Labour. Yes, and, and Labour's response, so one of their responses is to say, well, Osborne hasn't stuck to his own fiscal rules in this parliament. Why should we expect him to do any different in the next? Um, my guess is that Labour will probably table amendments to these and say, well, we are also committed to fiscal responsibility and controlling welfare spending, but we'll do it in a different way. Yeah. Um, and finally, we yeah, you mentioned in your interview with Ebors, he was notably quite nice about Nick Clegg, which marks a, a pretty big shift in tone from the way that he he used to talk about him and even from the slightly more cool kind of it's about it's not about people it doesn't matter you know we'd all get on with the job in hand kind of rhetoric that we've had is that is that a play to try and kind of worry Nick Clegg or do you think that's a genuine overture of, of friendship I think it's a I think it's a genuine overture um and I think it's in part because there has been a softening of the Lib Dem position as well so often after 2010 they said, well, maybe we could work with Miliband, but we really couldn't work with Bulls, who you know, perhaps unfairly is seen as an incredibly tribal figure um, and as someone who um, played a part in ensuring that the negotiations failed last time. But I think there are a few big things going on that have sort of sparked this, this shift um, among, among Labour figures, of whom Bulls is obviously a, a significant one. I mean, Labour's poll lead is now about half as large as it, as it was at the end of last year. Um, Clegg's position as leader is secure. I mean, after Eastley, um, after sort of the humbling of Vince Cable at the most recent Lib Dem conference, I think it's safe to assume he is going to be there in May 2015. Um, for a period, Labour's default assumption was that Clegg would be gone by then and they'd be dealing with mm. Vince Cable or Tim Farron. And I also think that singling Clegg out and saying, well, he has to go as a condition of a Labour Lib Dem coalition doesn't seem very Millibandite. So his politics is all about sort of principles mm. and ideas and, and sort of framing that debate around personalities. We don't like something... Nick Clegg, he's a collaborator. Yeah. He's not very Millibandite. No, I know, I see what you mean about that. So, and actually, the way that the polls are looking at the moment, a Lib Lab coalition is one of the higher likelihoods, right? Yes. Um, I still think you know, Labour have a, have a chance of a small majority simply because of the good fortune of a, of a coalition and, and, and a, a right-wing party that's taking votes from the Tories. Um, but certainly you know, a poll lead of six, six points, sort of 16 months away from the election, is not large enough for them to be confident of a majority. And could Labour do a deal with the Lib Dems if they're the single largest party? I think yeah, absolutely. I mean, people forget, you know, David Cameron uh, dismissed Clegg as his as his favourite joke, joke. I mean, yeah. before 2010. Uh, I mean, one of the rules of politics is that you always do what is necessary to, to keep power or to retain it. I think that's probably a very good note to end on. Thank you very much, George. Uh, on the road, on location, 
in Westminster. I'm joined now by Ryan Shorthouse, who is the director of Bright Blue, uh, often described as the uh, modernising think tank for the Conservative Party, the progressive wing of the Conservative Party. Uh, maybe Ryan, you know, you you call you you intervened uh, over Christmas uh, in the debate about what should happen to the Conservative Party, where its future lies, and that. Um, provoked some discussion about what sort of what is left of the modernising or compassionate or progressive wing of the Conservative Party. Maybe you could start by explaining what it, what Bright Blue actually is and what it aims to do. Okay, so Bright Blue is um, a pressure group and think tank for liberal conservatives, uh, and we're very supportive of Cameron's drive uh, and people around Cameron to modernise uh, the Conservative Party. And of course, there is um, a criticism of modernisers that it's a um, it's a small clique of people right at the top of the peop- uh, right at the top of the party. We want to say no. Actually, this um, has a lot of grassroots support amongst activists, councillors, and, MP- and MPs who are supportive of the modernising direction. And for us, liberal conservatism draws on the best of our conservative roots. So first is this idea of optimism, optimism about um, individuals' potential, but also the direction of society. Secondly, sort of drawing on our Burkean roots, it's a, a sort of scepticism of ideology uh, and a belief in evidence uh, and working out, poli- working out policy and politics in a practical manner. And thirdly, a belief in markets, both in public services and consumers consumer markets, but using government where inequities and efficiencies inefficiencies arise. So we have a clear set of principles that draw on the best of different conservative traditions. Uh, and we want to uh, show that there's a lot of groundswell support for this liberal conservative. Well, that's interesting you say that, because I think a, a lot of people, and probably a lot of people listening to this podcast, will think, no, there isn't. The Conservative Party is doing everything it can to try and look a bit more like UKIP for, in desperate fear of, of losing uh, the next election because of angry reactionary voters going off in that direction. And, and that was very much seemed to be the subtext or even the foretext of, of, of what you wrote, I think it was in The Independent over Christmas. So is, do you feel the need to, that your side of the party has to speak louder or, or sort of express it, these views with more urgency? So what I think modernisers want are two things. First, they want to make sure the Conservative Party is in touch with the modern world. It has answers to the issues that people care about. So things like public services, the environment, yes, gay rights. It's not uh, abandoning our principles. It's applying conservative principles to these modern issues that people care about. So that's the first thing. The second thing is really appealing to those on... um, low incomes um, uh, and really helping them with the cost of living and high quality public services because as Ashcroft polling shows uh, there is still a perception the Tories the party uh, the Tory party is the party of the rich we want to show actually it's the party for everybody no matter what your identity or your background is if you're united behind a belief in certain values hard work responsibility then the Conservative Party's for you now one thing about the modernisers is there's always a perception that it's just these metro, so-called metropolitan issues, gay rights, green issues, for example, when actually uh, modernisers in the early days were very concerned about addressing poverty and thinking about how you uh, deal with that. 
Uh, and the critique went, actually, it's not just about cash transfers uh, and Labour, obviously, were very committed to that. Um, so are there alternative ways, the big society, parenting, which might help pe- lift people out of poverty? Again, there will be, there'll be, a, there will be people, you know, particularly, obviously, people on the left, but others as well, you know, and, and Lib Dem saying... Um, you again come off it. <laughs> the look at what the cho- the choices the chancellor has actually made. Uh, the, the, the tax cut for millionaires, as they call it, but also you know just at the beginning of this week, um, saying well we've got to do more deficit reduction on the back of working age poor, and we're going to find another twelve billion, but we're not going to touch uh, rich pensioner benefits. So sorry, you know, the likelihood is there's going to be people who depend on tax credits, young people who might want housing benefit, and disabled people are all now sort of um, in line for cuts and, and you know, not being as sort of non-partisan as I can, it, you can see how with well-meaning though the, a bright blue agenda might be, it doesn't seem to be really getting a serious look in between now and 2015. Well, what my intervention in The Guardian uh, over Christmas was um, that perhaps there is too much focus on trying to set the agenda based on clamping down on immigrants and clamping down on working age benefits. And we need a much more positive message on that. And indeed, I think there are people uh, within, in government, in cabinet and senior advisors uh, as well who want a more balanced human position. So, for example, this week, we know that uh, people close to Ian Duncan Smith have said, um, you know, we can't keep focusing on clamping down on working age benefits. It needs to be much broader than that. Well, that's for two reasons. First is, if you really want to reduce the deficit, you can't just look at working age benefits. It needs to be much wider. And indeed, the majority of the welfare budget is spent on pensioners. But secondly, we can't be seen to be continuously clamping down on working age benefits. The universal credit, for example, is a positive narrative about helping people uh, in poverty, making work pay, and the Conservatives need to be on the side of people who are trying their best to to, to climb out of poverty. Um, so we need a positive agenda. So I I think there are a lot of voices who are starting to rear their head over Christmas and now who want that more positive, humane uh, message to come out. Do you get a sense then that I mean I I've spoken to other you know, modernizers, advisors, people you know in, in Conservative MPs who are saying. Actually, there is a battle now on for the soul of this party. We cannot just carry on trying to be UKIP light because even if that claws us towards the finish line in 2015, it massively sets us back for afterwards, you know, whether you win or not, for being a party that speaks for all people. And and I wonder if, you know, sort of last question really, whether you get a sense that actually, you know, you, you suggest as a, a sort of a silent, if not the majority, there's a lot, a lot more people who are sympathetic to this agenda than express it in public and then they express concern about the direction the Conservatives are taking, uh, do you think we're gonna, that's going to start coming out more over the next few months? I think so. Um, and I think it's important that people who are modernisers in the party, both MPs and campaign groups around, really uh, promote that more human progressive conservatism that we want to see. Because at the end of the day, people are attracted by an optimistic original message. And at the moment, it seems that uh, Downing Street is too transfixed in trying to respond to agendas set by Labour and UKIP. So Labour 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Talking very strongly about cost of living, UKIP obviously around immigration in Europe.、Um, and Downing Street shouldn't feel like they need to respond all the time to those agendas. Of course, have policies on them. But set a clear, positive, original narrative where people can、uh, be drawn to it. And indeed, the big society、uh, was was all about that. It was distinct.、Uh, it was something、uh, which was distinctly conservative and spoke to、um, uh, spoke to the modern times. So I think we need to we need to get back to a sort of positive. The, the big society they can't rehabilitate that now, can they? I do sense that that moment has passed. You need something else, another story. Whether it's the global race or there's something, it has to be something else. That is the forward-looking, optimistic pitch. Well, I think the thing about big society it was it wasn't clearly defined, and as a result, it meant so many things to different people that it was just not a doorstep seller. But there needs to be、uh, a conservatism which is much more human and optimistic, which is optimistic about people's life chances、uh, and values, ambition, but also nurtures the bonds、uh, that we have、uh, in communities. Uh, but also in families, and that's when Cameron's at his best, I think, as a family man who's positive、uh, about people, particularly people、uh, in poverty.、Um, uh, and I think that's what we need to return to. Great, thank you, Ryan Shawhouse. Thank you very much. Internet trolling or internet abuse has been in the news again this week with the conviction of two people for harassing feminist campaigner Caroline Criado Perez. I'm joined by our columnist Laurie Penny, who's been writing about misogyny on the internet for several years, and our tech reporter Ian Stedman to discuss where we might go next. So, Laurie, first of all, I want to talk to you because you sort of sparked off my interest in this when I saw the kind of absurd levels of hatred that you got, particularly on Twitter.、Mm-hmm. Has that got better or worse in the last two years? I think there's certainly been a change, particularly among what I'd call the commentariat in the UK. I think、um, there is still a, an, an astonishing level of viciousness that comes from the online community in terms of the the four chan end of it, but、um, there is less, slightly less, casual misogyny amongst your. Um, pale, stale, and male commentators from across the internet spectrum. Of course, we won't name names, particularly on this podcast. I think that there's been more of a understanding that maybe that's not all right. But the volume of、um, the volume of trolling,、um, and of course, you know, you can call it. Some people don't like it when you call it trolling.、Um, the volume of attacks has、uh, has not really led up. I think.、Um, It has become slightly easier to manage in some ways because people are more aware of it. One, what, the big thing that's changed is the conversation around it.、Um, it doesn't feel anymore like it's something that I can't talk about, something that I just have to put up with. Nobody is saying to me anymore. Well, fewer people are saying to me, "Oh, well, that's just what happens if you're a girl and you write online." I think the big success that there's been in the last two years is that kind of. Consciousness raising point of of saying、mm-hmm. like, people just I don't think were aware. I remember when I published that first article, 
people just had no idea. Even actually, people like older female columnists who'd always been yeah. published and had always had um, you know very well maintained comment sections, they hadn't had got any idea that this was what the kind of unmediated flow of stuff that came towards people was like. And now I just don't think you would hear make people. Well, you hear very few people make. I'm sure Brendan O'Neill somewhere <laughs> in a bin is shouting into it about how yes. women just need to toughen <laughs> up. But you know, generally the, the level of conversation has changed. Ian, what has changed in about the way that internet companies have, have regarded this issue? Um, well, the big ones have been generally quite slow to respond to it. Um, uh, Facebook and Twitter in particular. Uh, Twitter very recently has kind of rushed through this report abuse button where you can, mm-hmm. similar to report spam, um, uh, you can report someone for sending abusive uh, tweets or messages. Uh, Facebook has kind of over the years, very gradually sort of conceded ground to various governments around the world when it's come to this kind of issue. Um, These companies, I I guess, tend to be American and therefore have that attitude of sort of the First Amendment free speech. Mm. It's not really their job. They're the medium through which this is conducted. It's not their job to police speech. um, And uh, probably a few of them probably think that it's not really the job of people to put to police speech in that way, which is obviously you know, one of the interesting problem. things I think that's happened with Facebook. Is I was talking to Whitney Phillips, who's researched kind of subcultural trolling, i.e., not specifically abuse, more people just doing things to get a reaction. Yeah. The kind of some of what 4chan does, you know, trying to create mm-hmm. hoaxes, trying to create anger. And she said the one thing that's really changed about Facebook is that they they begin to graph people's relationships so much better, and they want to insist on you putting as many personal details as you can about yourself. So they because they want to sell your da- data to advertisers, Absolutely. they want to target you, they want to target your friends. So actually, they've become much better at spotting accounts which have recently been created, don't have any friends, or are friends only with other people that are engaged with problematic behaviour, because they can see your where you are in a web of people people they've actually found it a lot easier to target people for example who've done things like created um, offensive sites or spammed memorial sites for dead teenagers yeah um i think twitter probably is a different case because they mm. are because you can start a twitter account and then you can instantly talk to whoever you want whereas you know facebook is now pr- a pretty locked down yeah, yeah. Um, i mean i get several it's a regular occurrence for me that i'll uh, be trolled and sent horrific abusive messages by some random Twitter account and I'll go to the page to block the account and I'll see that they've tweeted seven times all at me and they've got no followers. It's just random stuff, um, ish- accounts like that. But I think the um, the interesting issue with Facebook and Twitter and calling on companies to regulate speech is, of course, there's a cultural difference there, um, particularly between the UK and the US, because the US has such a um, such a guarded position about speech and, and protected speech. But it's also the case that we seem to be talking about creating a technological fix for something that is not a technological problem. Um, most of the discussion around trolling has been um, around the idea that the problem is one of anonymity, the, the idea that tro- that people do this stuff because they can get away with it and uh, the cases um, like uh, Isabella Sawley. Um, uh, I think the there's an interesting of kind trolls. of um, division between anonymity and lack of consequences because mm-hmm. if you talk to the researchers in this, they'll say, well, actually, you're anonymous in a lot of situations in your everyday life, effectively, but you have a, a face and a presence and you, you feel yeah. that... Uh, actually, what you fear most of all, why, why people don't shout abuse at other people on the bus 
generally is fear of social disapproval and feeling the immediate effect of lots of people sitting around you looking at you disapprovingly which is a very powerful patrolling thing that's what you yeah. don't have on the internet and, and that's why the most important cultural change is not getting the people who control twitter and facebook to take a different stance on abuse i don't think the change is going to be top down the change will come when people understand that there are consequences and social consequences to behaving in this way towards women people of color transsexual people that there are consequences for harassment because at the moment as in many situations in what we previously thought of as the real world um, there are no consequences for people who harass it's um, there was a in a couple of TED talks I've seen recently about masculinity and uh, the behavior and sexual harassment physical sexual harassment the discussion has been along the lines of we must create consequences for men who do this stuff, because men perform this as a way of uh, as a, as a way of performing their masculinity, because there are no consequences. And but obviously, it's, it's not just men. That's no, we, uh, no, and, I, and 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 actually, researchers into things like gang rape will probably tell you the same: is that a lot of that is actually about the relationships between the mm -hmm. men involved. They're performing masculinity in front of each other, essentially. But that's a, that's okay. So, Ian, I'm going to invite you to wade into the into the fire swamp. How much is it men's problem? How much is it? I'm being asked to speak for my entire chat. Yeah. Oh dear. I hope you've um, had a chat with all men recently. Um, I, no, I, I think I think this is part of a. I, I totally agree. It's part of a larger thing. It ties into things like rape culture and the emphasis on condemning women for acting in ways that encourage rapists to rape them, rather than condemning the rapist. You know, it, it's all part of these larger patriarchal problems. Although one um, thing that is reassuring is I don't hear as much of what I used to hear two years ago, which was either. Why don't women use gender-neutral names then? Yeah. Or why don't you get off Twitter? And like, why are you on Twitter anyway? And you, which was again is mm. exactly that rape culture point of why don't you change your behaviour so that your present your exactly. mere existence is less yeah. offensive to other people? So maybe that is a sign that we the are. The argument, of course, is the uh, is about the policing of women in public space and the internet functions as public space. Mm. The idea that you can just get off Twitter. I mean. I could get off Twitter, but Twitter is where I talk to my friends. It's where I promote my work. It's where I find out what's going on in the world. It's where it's where I do a lot of my social interaction, and it's to me it's the same argument as telling a girl that if she doesn't want to get raped, she should just stay home. It's telling women to leave public space to protect themselves, and that's that's the discourse that needs to change here. It needs to be talking to to abusers and to people um, who are participating in that culture and saying it is on you to change. And I think the consciousness raising has been really effective, not just in telling women that it's all right to take up space and it's all right to be in public and online as women, but it, in making it clear to, to other people that this is going on, I've seen some really, really heartening reactions from men, actually, particularly when you know, I just hit retweet on a horrible tweet that's sent to me, which I know some people have criticised. Well, that's interesting because yeah. there's, there's always the question about... So I find them really grappling hard because if you talk to trolling researchers, they will say the, the, what these people want is, a, is an emotional reaction. Often in a lot of cases, they just want to know that their words have had an effect. So that mm -hmm. in some ways, the worst thing you can do is show that you're hurt and upset. I think there's also another problem with retweeting about the kind of particularly if you've got a lot of followers are you sort of throwing people to the wolves as it mm -hmm. were um sometimes it sometimes it works uh, the guy who um abused mary beard who was a young student yes. who'd one what not not the abuse of mary beard but another one he well, sent something yeah. about how she looked really ugly on tv she retweeted him he was 
more apologetic. He was so apologetic and oh. shamed, and like someone got in touch with his mum, and it just seemed like that was a really positive experience. But generally, what do you do when you when you get abuse now? Um, I will. There are several things. Uh, often I just block, and some of it's got better just because I'm I'm like the fastest draw on the block button. Um, but uh, what I what I also I also retweet stuff. I talk to people about it, and that kind of um, that kind of sort of daily activism is something I feel that I've um with like without quite meaning to become become involved in. I mean I wish that over the past few years this hadn't had to be part of the feminist work I do. Really I didn't when I started writing online and doing feminist work I didn't intend to be talking about online abuse and then I, I wrote a book, Cyber Sexism, which has uh, come out Coming, came so it's out available last at all good ebook shops. All good ebook shops, actually not all good ones, just Amazon. Right. But um, <laughs> but um, but that's but that's an interesting point because there's been a lot of disquiet about the fact has this dominated the conversation too much yeah. and has this crowded out other issues from feminism. And which to which my position has always been, you have to first argue for the right to, for women to speak at all. Yeah. Um, and you know, people like us, we put ourselves out there, and we should just expect a level of criticism. Certainly, maybe even a level of people just want to think you're ugly. Well, that's fine. But I do think that there is a, a big issue generally about you know you hear people who run a blog for like their ten friends that's about cakes, yeah. and suddenly they're flooded with like their comment inbox is flooded with rape threats. That's the bit that probably doesn't get. And I, I, I do worry that it becomes, it looks like high-profile women complaining. Are the only person who get abused, yeah. and that's mm. And that's definitely not true. And I'm sure that there are, like you say, there's plenty of transgender people, people of colour. The Guardian did a series where they asked um, Mehdi Hassan, our columnist, and several other writers to yeah. write about the abuse they got because they're Muslim online and the, and the forms that takes. And I think that this is a big social problem. So, Ian, how do we fix it? Oh gosh! Just quickly to finish. <laughs> um, well, right, have all the pra- have all the practical steps that have been. Te- I mean, do you I think mean, realistically there is anything Twitter can do at this point? Have um, they done all the things beyond crippling their own service and thus the the way they're going to make money? No. So I mean, you're gonna the only way you can fix it. I mean, I'm not going to suggest a solution because I honestly am not the person to ask here. But um, anything further that they're going to do, you're going to have to force them to do because you're going to force them to cripple their own business model but i get current what gives me a slight amount of hope is actually weirdly advertising and the advertising mm-hmm. revenue of the internet mm. is that it is in for example google's interest that you are signed in constantly so they can build up a really accurate profile of you it is in everyone who whose business on the internet depends on advertising wants to know more about you people are encouraged to give more information that i hope increases people's investment in their online identity as something that mm-hmm. they feel is coexistent with their offline identity. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wish this wasn't ending just now because there's so much <laughs> I want to say about privacy and anonymity now but we have to have right. people's access to the digital In which problems. case, you will be given a rare invitation back to the New Statesman podcast Yay. to talk about this. Um, but for now, um, Laurie and Ian, thank you very much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, which you can find every week on iTunes and at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. It's produced by Philip Morn and Caroline Crampton, and our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. (laughs) 